Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I'm your Jewish film podcaster. And joining me as always is Daniel Zana. Hey, Harry. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a video editor, documentary filmmaker. And I'm wondering if I could get my key back, Harry, at the end of the podcast. That would be great. Our guest today is a writer, author, comedian, actor, and podcaster. She's the creator, writer, and starred in Difficult People with Billy Eichner. She currently co-hosts Double Threat, the podcast with Tom Sharpling. Julie Klausner, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We're very excited to have you on. We're big fans. Today, we're going to be talking about the Billy Wilder film, The Apartment, which you chose from 1960. And before we kind of dive deep and, you know, sort out all the stuff that was depicted in the film, we kind of wanted to ask you, why did you choose this film to discuss today? Well, I love this film and I'm always happy to discuss it. I think it's one of the only films that shows what it's actually like to experience Christmas. <laughs> I think it's sort of the ultimate sort of between Christmas and New Year's film. I, I, I think it is so romantic without being sentimental. And then I, I and just like brilliantly, brilliantly written, acted, directed. But I uh, chose it for this because I think it's a, a really interesting representation of what it means to be a mensch and and the the jewishness in the movie is so interesting to me as far as how it functions morally and culturally not necessarily spiritually and and i thought that might be a a fun like uh lens to 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 put on it when when readdressing this movie and i mean all billy wilder in particular but 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 this one specifically like how how does it how does it show not Judaism, but Jewishness? Yeah, absolutely. And when that line comes in at the end, and I knew we were going to discuss it, you know, to, to a long end, but that, that line just like, why don't you grow up Baxter? Be a mensch. Do you know what that means? I'm not sure. A mensch, a human being. So you got off easy this time. So you were lucky. <laughs> it's really kind of like the moral punchline of the film. Like that is where it's kind of all building towards delivered by our, you know, our favorite Jewish characters, which I'm sure we'll also discuss extensively. But it's just, it. I, I thought it was so cool how like this movie that is not explicitly Jewish, you know, sometimes we cover movies on this podcast that, you know, it, it's very much there in the text. And like you even said, you know, you started talking about the movie that it, it is a Christmas movie at the end of the day, you know, and obviously there are, I think, some Jewish, some characters that are pretty explicitly Jewish, for the most part, that doesn't seem to be its angle. But when it wraps up kind of with that punchline of like, you know, be a mensch of, you know, how important that, you know, moral aesthetic and just kind of wrapped up in that specific Yiddish word, the way that that's articulated by the end of the movie, it becomes clear that that's that from the perspective of just Billy Wilder, the, the movie is Jewish, even if the cast, you know, the characters, even if they're not Jewish, this movie, you know, as a whole is Jewish. And I'm really excited to to discuss that at length. There's a lot to unpack here. Is it too soon to go into context corner, Harry? Is that okay? If you're ready for it, let's I do it. I think so. I think so. Um, so we're going to give a little bit of context about the creation of the film. It's kind of got an interesting, and everyone is welcome in the context corner. It's not just, you know, put Daniel in the context corner and that's it. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's all, everyone is welcome. So the idea for the film, you know, it was written by Billy Wilder and someone named IAL Diamond. And the concept came from a number of different sources. It, there was some like Hollywood lore about some infidelity and someone else using someone else's apartment. There was also a play called Brief Encounter, um, which, uh, you know, two people were borrowing a friend's apartment. Um, 
there's a you know all, there's a the the suicide piece came from one of diamond's friends who like came home and found uh after that he broke up with his girlfriend she committed suicide in his bed so story-wise it, it kind of was cobbled together from a number of things it was a very successful film it came out in 1960 it was nominated for uh 10 awards and won five uh, best picture best director best screenplay uh jack lemon shirley mclean um and jack Crushin were oscar nominated uh lemon and mclean also won the golden globe awards so a lot in there um you know it's very well regarded and um you know, in terms of our three lead actors, we have Jack Lemmon, Fred McMurray, and Shirley MacLaine. And so right before, you know, let's talk about like uh, Jack Lemmon. He was he was doing Some Like It Hot and a movie called It Could Happen to You, starring Ju Judy Holliday, who we just covered um, in Born Yesterday. Uh, I guess it'll be last episode by the time you listen to this. Um, Shirley MacLaine was in, a, you know, Around the World in 80 Days and another movie called Can Can. And Fred McMurray before this, was really seen as sort of a uh, a nice guy kind of character, I think, maybe. Uh, he was in Double Indemnity and The Shaggy Dog and things like that. But correct me if I'm wrong. We was very straight. It was kind of like a straight. Like, when was My Three Sons? That was after this, right? Oh, yeah. So that was 1960 to 72. So that was like just right after this, I guess. I mean, he was very like it was definitely like a patriarch, like a, uh -huh. a, and, and double identity, kind of like the ultimate like straight guy that was bamboozled by Barbara Stanwyck being a real minx. Yeah. So he was sort of the the postcard version of Mr. Sheldrake, as opposed to sort of the 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 fink, as they call it, you know, like he yeah. was. The, the nice guy. And so, like, I think in 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 this depiction, he seemed to get a lot of hate mail and feedback and criticism from like women on the street who would be like, shame on you. Shame. on Yeah. You. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that's my context for this. I think a lot of the character portrayals came from Wilder's own history, like um, Mildred was sort of based on on Billy Wilder's mom. And it's kind of like a complex movie tonally, but I think we can we can talk about that in a second. One of the reviewers from the Saturday Review called this movie a dirty fairy tale with a schnook mm. for a hero and a sad little elevator operator for a fairy princess. So I think that's uh, more or less my context corner. Any thoughts on the making or reception of the film before we dive in? I'm I'm fascinated that it was a hit. I think that's so encouraging, human as they say on the movie, humanity-wise. Yeah, eighth highest grossing, which is you know pretty good. I think it did, I think it did fairly well. I can get some numbers, but it's always nice when something this dark and this smart still yeah. lands with people. It's it's a it's a uh, it's a mitzvah. <laughs> yeah. It absolutely is. And I don't think it's much of a hot take to say that it really holds up. You know, Wilder, obviously, you know, a lot of his movies are constantly revisited. But I was sitting on the couch. My wife, who doesn't always watch these movies with me, kind of came and sat down and watched the whole thing. It was it was just funny. It was sharp. It was quick. Oh. It, and it does a really good job. And, you know, whatever. We don't have to get so far into this. But just the plotting is so, like, precise. And it's almost to the point of it's not quite predictable, but it's just very reflective at every beat. It's like, oh, I get it. I, I see exactly where this is going. Oh, that person's actually dating this. That's the mystery man right. who we were talking about earlier. And so much of that is happening with this movie. It really, it really held up. Yeah, the story, the the the, the like the outline and the plotting, the storytelling, mm -hmm. I, I mean, are just second to none. And then the dialogue supports the story and it's like, plays against it in such a economical way and mm -hmm. it, it, it it's is a great word. It, it's a it's just it's I, I always marvel 
at the like just the 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 tricks and the callbacks and the people listening exactly. to each other so they could use what the other character said earlier I, I mean the the things that that he does um innovatively and just like just by paying attention and having the characters yeah. pay attention and the characters paying to the top of their intelligence just so so rewarding yeah I, I love a movie where the characters are smart and the plot isn't triggered by them just not talking to the right people or not asking the obvious questions right. and it's just no trust our characters and also what you were saying about economical i mean that goes back to what i was saying earlier about you know be a mensch just being the summation of the whole film and it tells you everything you need to know whether that's diving into just the loaded nature of you know mensch what that word means but even the idea of it it's just just be a good person it's simple it's not you know don't overthink it just just be a mensch i really love that yeah, I'd read that the, um, you know, a lot of the the set decoration in the apartment was like kind of picked up from thrift stores and things like that. So like it, a lot of the places seem fully realized and really nice. I think Jack Lemmon's singing when he was making pasta was improvised as well. Are we dressing for dinner? You know, just come as you are. You're pretty good with that racket. You should see my back end. I know I'm dipping back into context corner, sorry. Uh, and then the last thing is just like that office shot, that sort of famous office shot where we first see him at the typewriter. I, I don't know if it's a typewriter. It's like, an, is it an adding machine? Right, I know what you mean. Yeah, something yeah, like that. that. Yeah. So there, there's like this forced perspective. And I, from what I understood, like he cast a much shorter people to be in the background. Um, so like the tall people would be in front and, and then shorter people would be in the office in the back and That's they sort funny. of like tilted the, sh the, the set and everything like that. So I think we're, I think we're good to like leave the context corner now. Apologies for dipping back in. We can always go back. It's totally fine. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Appreciate that. And IAL Diamond, I just want to mention yeah, was, yeah. uh, was Billy Wilder's writing partner for a few films. And, and I say no, maybe most notably some like it hot. Ah, right, right, right. And yeah, both were Jewish. IAL, I I was trying to figure out. It's like a, it's I. It's basically Isaac uh, oh, Dominici. Okay, okay yeah, Dom, like, or Dominici, yeah, Rom Romanian American. Got it. Okay, Harry, we've been talking so much about the apartment. Um, I do feel like we it's incumbent upon us to tell our listeners via the amazing IMDb summary what this film is about. Could you help us out there? Sure thing. It reads. A Manhattan insurance clerk tries to rise in his company by letting its executives use his apartment for trysts, but complications and a romance of his own ensue. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's good. That works. Economical, I guess. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. You don't want to ruin anything. No right. spoilers here. Yeah. No spoilers in the summary. That's for sure. But you'd be surprised, Julie, like some of these IMDb summaries, when it's like such a big heady movie you'll get like the most sparse imdb right that doesn't right, really right. do it justice and yeah it's... the people are, yeah or spoiler rich bruce willis a ghost yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> statute of limitations might be up on that one so yeah hopefully no one I, I, feel, I feel that yes i certainly feel that way yeah. yeah yeah now we've kind of set the table here let's take a quick break take a breath and grab some water hang out and we'll be right back and we'll kind of get into some of the themes and talking points and discussions and all that good stuff from the apartment. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Julie Klausner to discuss the film, The Apartment. Harry, would you like to get us started? 
Yeah, sure. So Daniel and I were discussing earlier, and one of the themes that we really wanted to dive deep into and get everyone's thoughts on were this concept of just identity and really false identity. There are several different characters, and I'll fill in for people who don't remember or haven't seen the movie, but you know, characters who kind of are looked at one way by some people and others by by another. So obviously Baxter in our central role, he is considered by his neighbors specifically as this sort of ladies man. They hear all this commotion coming from his apartment every night, but we know the truth is he's a lone bachelor. He doesn't actually, you know, engage in the trysts that, you know, we mentioned earlier his coworkers are. There's, you know, Sheldrake, who Daniel pointed out is, you know, a family man to his wife. He has this, you know, he leads this very positive life, but we know on the side he's burying these secrets of, you know, he's this serial cheater. He has this relationship we meet, we see early on in the film and then learn that, you know, he's been doing this with countless other secretaries before and just, you know, is that kind of character. There is even Fran, you know, we talked about how is perceived one way by her coworkers and then kind of we learn more about her outside of it. So there's this real, you know, grappling with identity that uh, is occurring in this film. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on a, you know, what you noticed about this, Julie, like how you saw this, but of course this being Jews on film, there is something we think about, you know, the kind of separation of identity between work and who you are, maybe between, you know, the Jewishness that's waiting for him at his apartment with his neighbors versus what he kind of has to do to, uh, you know, to fit into basically have upward mobility within his office. So before I step on too much of it, I really just wanted to open up the discussion and hear if you had any thoughts on any of the, uh, the different things that I just mentioned. On the Jewishness of the characters? Well, specifically, we wanted to discuss this idea of identity and this question right. of, you know, characters bearing their identity. Is that something that you also clocked on your watch? Does that make sense to you? And you don't have to tie in the Jewishness right away, but it all kind of comes back to that on this podcast. That's that's half the fun. I don't know about burying their identity or assimilating necessarily. I definitely think that Jack Lemon is is very wasp coded and mm -hmm. that the Jewish characters could not be more Jewish if they tried. I mean, they're speaking in like vaudevillian Yiddish. Look, Doc, can't you forget you're a doctor? Let's just say you're here as a neighbor. Well, as a doctor, I guess I can't prove it wasn't an accident. But as your neighbor, I'd like to kick your keys to clear around the block. Mind if I cool this off? Mm, yeah, I'll be so. I don't know what you did to that girl in there, and don't tell me. But it was bound to happen the way you carry on. Live now, pay later, diners club. But they are very, yeah. very well... Um, I mean, of all the stereotypes, if you'd want to choose, they are represented as doctors and helpers. And the the land the landlady is like, you know, she's a she's a property owner with a cute dog named Oscar's great dog who needs to <laughs> be told that. by Jack Lemon to leave the frame, which is one of my favorite shots because she calls him. She's like, come on, Oscar. And Oscar like stands there and Jack Lemon like like pushes him on the button Oscar's like got it thank you <laughs> um but I I I I love that like but but it, it's definitely one of those things where it's like the you know the leads are kind of like white Christians and the ethnic folks are there to help them in their goals that said um you know between like Dr. Dreyfus Dr. Dreyfus's wife the owner of the of the the, the landlady and then I would also like maybe argue the um the character he meets in the bar that night oh um yes. yeah it, i i think that there are like i i think it's a, i think the movie's good for the jews um even if we are in um sort of supporting characters they we are we are represented as like kind moral helpful um judgmental but like justifiably so 
um, altruistic, knowledgeable. And um, I, I, I mean, I, and I was always kind of like, I was sort of, I, I, I was always very Im impressed by how um, outward that was. Just that Dr. Dreyfus's mom is going to bring Miss Kublik chicken soup the next morning for breakfast instead of eggs. Right. Um, there are, um, there are just, there are, there are signifiers that are not hidden in any way um, as though to indicate that like, in no way are they saying that New York City is an easy place to live, especially if you're single and you're trying to get to your, your goals. But it, it does tell you that like, there are, there are people there that are willing to help you um, and you, you're not alone in being alone. It's interesting to me because I think I'm trying to weigh where, you know, this character, Jack Lemmon's Baxter character, where he kind of fits in with this, because I think the way you just described a lot of these Jewish, you know, kind of outside figures in the movie, they are the ones kind of motivating his change within this waspy world. But I, I question if by the end of the movie, because obviously the movie ends where he, you know, rejects the new promotion that he's been getting, he kind of hands back the key, he's going back. And inside, so he's obviously, he's clearly, you know, moved, pushed, pushed along by, you know, the influence of these Jewish characters. The question is, if you say that he's starting in this kind of very waspy, very, you know, you know, Catholic kind of culture of this, you know, American corporate culture, by the end of it, do we think he's almost escaped that? Is he leaving that for something more akin to the chicken soup, you know, kosher community outside of him? Or is it really just they kind of existed for his push, but he's not, you know, it's not that that dichotomy I'm setting. It's not kind of the path that he's along. He's not becoming all of a sudden this, you know, not quite as waspy, more you know, Jewish in the cultural sense kind of character by the end. Yeah. I think he, I think he'll find another job. And I think at the end, he simply like grew a pair. It was just his bar mitzvah and whatever he decides to do after right. this is up to him. I, I don't think he's opting out as much as he's just, he just stopped taking it. Right. Yeah. I wanted to give a special shout out to Margie McDougal, uh, the, the, uh, the woman in the cafe who has the, what is it? She has a jockey husband who was arrested in Cuba. Such an unnecessary but great addition, adding some nice seasoning to the uh, to the overall like like you were saying, Julie, before like this New York vibe of just meeting total strangers and then just like just connecting on a, on a Christmas Eve. So in terms of like this whole concept of this hidden identity that all of our characters have, you know, between their work life and their personal life and things like that, what comes to mind for me is um, at least you know, growing up as a observant Jew and things like that, I remember distinctly this notion of, you know, I'm Daniel on paper and on my resume and things like that. But then when I go into the office for like a job interview, am I supposed to wear a kippah? Do I like tell my coworkers that I keep kosher? How does that work with like group meals? And so like it, that for me resonated because it was something that I had experienced. Um, and, you know, I can see that some of the characters have, different identities at home and at work and they have to present differently just because of social expectations and things like that so that was where i was coming from it it's just this idea of being a different person religiously at home or in your personal life and then you come to work and you kind of have to be a blank slate so as to not you know ruffle any feathers or stick out baxter has so many different identities um and and when he comes home it's interesting that he never I guess maybe by explaining what is actually happening, it's more complex than just sort of accepting the label of this ladies' man. You know, Dreyfus makes so many comments, and even to Fran, makes all, she makes all these comments, and he never kind of really explains it towards the end. He does, but 
And then Sheldrake is and Sheldrake and many other people in the office are also ha having these dual identities where these like straight laced upper management guys, but all of them have like sort of side mistresses and things like that. Um, and then Fran, who's just very, you know, very polite, but very um, complex individual, you know, she's struggling with a lot. And uh, there is a lot there. And I think, you know, I don't know if do you think it's like too much of a stretch, you know, between like, being like a, a, a whether it's like a religious Jew, privately versus professionally being something uh, a bit more generic. Does that set track? I think it depends on how we're looking at Baxter in this whole thing. Yeah. And I think that's what I was trying to touch on before. Ah, where, okay. You know, as we are wont to do with our Jewish films by Jewish directors and kind of looking at the central mm -hmm. role. Yeah. I think Daniel and I were coming from this place of, well, how is Baxter representing this Jewish experience, especially, you know, in the sixties or fifties, kind of when this movie is taking place. And, you know, that tension that we know existed between, you know, who you have to be in your work life and who you have to represent yourself and kind of assimilating is a word we've thrown around into mm -hmm. that waspy culture versus, you know who you truly are so I think his kind of balance his his uh struggles with his own identity and with you know not wanting to correct the Dreyfuses and not wanting to give up this secret and kind of putting on a performance for the you know for the people at work versus the people in his apartment I I, I recognize the way that we're kind of reading into that as that assimilatory thing and I think that's why it's so interesting Julie that when you first started talking about, you know, the Jewishness of this film, I think you immediately clung to the Dreyfuses and a lot of right. his ancillary characters, which we did too. I mean, those are, like you said, yeah. vaudevillian Yiddishisms. Like, it is sure. so Jewish. But I think it's more of how is Billy Wilder taking his cast of characters and having them use their Yiddishism, use their, you know, menschlichkeit, to throw out a word. Yes. And kind of and imposing that on a, an otherwise, you know, Catholic waspy character without actually transforming him. You know, that I kind of feel like is. If that's the case, I would point to two things. One is that he has a completely like a pre-New York life back in Cincinnati, which is really interesting that he had his best friend and his best friend's wife and a suicide attempt in his past. And he decided to reinvent himself in New York City. Mm -hmm. And I, I think. Another thing that's very interesting about the privacy around like not telling people like whenever they miss and, and it is frustrating, you know, in comedy, like farce it can be incredibly frustrating with misunderstandings as an right. audience member. I remember growing up watching Three's Company it would drive me crazy that people would not like say what stuff. they meant. Um, but I, I do think that in this film, there's a very specific choice. Uh, you know, Baxter makes a choice not to tell people that they're wrong when they misunderstand him because mm -hmm. he knows that it doesn't matter to them either way. It's not going to huh. affect the outcome. And it right. also may help them perceive of him in a way that is more or less advantageous, but ultimately doesn't really affect his goals. And, and then I do think that there's a decision to like shoulder the responsibility, which is maybe you know guilt fueled when 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 people think oh you know you're the one who did this to fran or uh -huh. other other yeah. you know things that you maybe wouldn't want to have to shoulder the burden of if you were innocent of them he takes them on whether it's because he thinks he deserves the the blame or be, because he's such a putz like letting people use him or right. because he knows it doesn't matter it's like it's if they want to believe that that's fine how does that matter um or it, it it's just helpful for the the comedy of it to to feel the misunderstanding, but it, it it definitely seems like it's his choice, and I think that um that's interesting. And then as far as Fran is concerned, Fran is by far the smartest character in this film, and oh, everyone yeah. in this film is 
except for Mr. Sheldrake, who is like a deep moron, like, like so stupid. This, this character is so deeply dumb that of course he's the boss. Like it's, it, I mean, right. <laughs> but, but, um, but I do think that Fran Kublik and she's valued as such in the workplace. It is sexual and romantic, the attention she gets, but all the women are jealous of her. She's considered like the prize when they find her in Baxter's bed. They're like, Oh my God, you hit the jackpot. Kublik wise. I think that, Kublik to me is the epitome of this like Jewish queen. <laughs> I think that I think that I think and I think that's part of what makes Sheldrake such a moron is that Sheldrake thinks of her as a mistress girlfriend on the side. Everyone with half a brain sees her as like, you know, like nail that down. Like that's the that's the gold ring. Are you crazy? Like you're not going to do any better than her we're safely into to Dreyfus territory, right? We can kind of like talk about them now. I think now that we're- Please. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's so interesting the the portrayal of Dr. Dreyfus, his wife and, and all, I think that they are, they're concerned like parents almost. They, they I almost feel like they treat Baxter like a, um, you know, almost like a child. You know, they're, they're concerned for him, but they don't want to take too stiff of a hand. And they never question any of his- you know, he knocks on the door all hours of night of the night and he's like, oh, yeah, Fran took a bunch of sleeping pills. He's like, all right, I'm going to go get my bag. Like no questions asked. None of that. And that's like that's like that true mensch behavior that we're talking about where it's like, sure, there's a sick person. I'm, I'm going to take care of it. Don't worry. I, I was going to report it, but don't worry. It's like not a big deal. And he's he's able to give him these like these moralistic lessons but without being like too stern and like too angry it's mostly just like wagging his finger and slapping his hand in a gentle kind of way i wouldn't say every time he slaps uh he slaps his hand it's very gentle there is that, no i mean there's definitely some but, he him, but, he, but he likes him but he but he likes him it's course, clear yeah. that he likes him yeah yeah of course absolutely and i mean yeah. When he slaps Fran, it's not gentle. That's for no, sure. That's, oh that's my what god! I when I first to. saw this, when I first <laughs> yeah. saw this movie, I was so shocked by that. Oh my god! Right, it was shocking. I think I might have read that that was like actual, yeah. you know, prescribed practice right. back in the right. day. You were supposed to I'm slap sure or whatever, it was. but it was absurd. I mean, <laughs> she took a, a, a whole or half a half a bottle full of sleeping pills, and then you know, for for context, you know, she took half a bottle of sleeping pills, and then vomited all up but i think she's you know she's so affected by these pills that she needs to drink coffee walk around pacing around the apartment and then uh get slapped in the face uh, repeatedly it's a good scene though it really oh, put yeah. the urgency into the like nothing like watching someone slap shirley mclean as hard as possible to get the audience to like be on the edge of their seat like you know sure. oh, fear totally. why you're like oh i understand the fear stakes wise. of this now totally yeah i mean it's um, I I'm I'm throwing this out there and feel free to shoot it down. Do you feel like she's maybe like the prototype for this? Um, there's a term nowadays called like the manic pixie dream girl. Would you say that, or or is that? I don't know. No, I no. don't. I think Kublik is her own. Uh, I, I I think she's as strong of a. I think she's as strong of a lead as Baxter. And and one of the things I love about her is that she exists exclusive of any man, and she does not exist to change him or right. encourage him or um inspire him um i, I and she's also very grounded and um even her impre 
even her impracticalities because like I know manic pixies like kind of um you know you picture a girl with flowers in her hair like mm -hmm. uh, you know okay yeah kind of off to see the wizard a little like I oh, think okay. she I think I think Fran is um is practical but her emotions get in the way and she's very frustrated with her emotions for being as volatile and as intense as they are and that self-awareness alone sets her apart from that archetype I think yeah I mean I, maybe what I was touch I'm trying to get at is that like you know I'm not super familiar with all of 1960s cinema in terms of the female depiction yeah I have a sense that it's mostly just like shallow sometimes it could be much more shallow characterizations with with a lot of like male-centered movies where like women are like arm candy or the object of someone's affection which it is somewhat here but she, like you said she's very much her own character she's probably like you said the smartest person in the room um you know she's not at the top of the building she's like riding the elevators but she's she's a very like well-crafted character and she has a lot of um different sides to her which i really enjoyed and appreciated because it was so different than a lot of the other stuff i'd seen yeah i i, I definitely uh, disagree with kind of the you know the idea that she would be this kind of like side character and even just a vehicle for baxter yeah. because she takes over the movie at some points like she has a full arc where she's you know once that twist kind of comes in that i was saying earlier that's like twist that like oh she's the one in the relationship with shell drake like oh and you see kind of where it goes we get scenes that, you know, Baxter's not in for a big chunk of the movie because we're following her arc. We're seeing, you know, them on their date and we're seeing the way she kind of overcomes this. And, you know, by that, especially even by that middle portion of the movie, like that's pretty, you know, the fact that she's the character that overdoses that, you know, the entire kind of middle second, third act becomes about reviving. Like that's that's what happens to a protagonist. It really does become yeah. her story by the middle. So I, I would definitely say that this is as much her movie as it is, you know, Baxter's. I would also add that in terms of Manic Pixie Dream Girl in the 1960s, in the late 1960s, there was a trend of there being like not zany but like quirky girl mm -hmm. um it, it, like uh seducing like a straight kind of guy and and barbara streisand did a yeah. lot of those movies goldie hahn did a lot of that okay. those movies uh there was um a film with uh liza minnelli called um what was it the something cuckoo um and uh and and it was sort of more about like the straight and like what's up doc owl mm -hmm. the pussycat is a little but like it it was kind of like straight lace guy and then a lady kind of blazing into his life um being sort of more bohemian which I, I think was a way of dealing with um the counterculture invading like more sort of straight circles in in the in the rom-com world but around mm -hmm. this era and i especially want to give credit to billy Wilder. i will always give credit to billy wilder i am sure. in awe of Deserves billy wilder. oh my god and we'll what a, you know occasionally i have like i'm gonna say jewish pride as in like he's one of ours and with him i swear i fell whenever i just see him like with with stuff like the the writing of fran kublik i think you can draw a line to how he writes marilyn monroe's character in some like it hot which is mm -hmm. sugar cane because as smart as fran is she does have that emotional like she is broken like yeah. th this guy broke her and yeah. the same thing with sugar cane like she is just bruised around every surface and she is not like feeling sorry for herself as much as she is just like nursing herself back to health and in um the case of some like it hot you have like you have tony curtis's character like taking advantage of that and then eventually falling in love with her but i i think that he writes 
I think he he writes emotion like from a, a a broken sort of female character so to the top of his and therefore their intelligence it, that I especially when I was in my twenties and I had my heart broken all all the time. Now I it's I, now I'm made out of calluses and like hard <laughs> meat, but um I, I I admire it so much because you could say. Sometimes like, oh, that person's all head and not enough heart. And like, I just think he so effortlessly combines both with these characters. And it I, I'm just in awe of it. It's so palpable how hurt she is when she's in that restaurant and her eyes are welled up. I am my heart always breaks watching her. She's so, so good at conveying what he, you know, gifted her on the page. And like the flip side of that is is that like Sheldrake, who's who we can all agree is like a, a big moron. He's just like Oh, I have a present for you. I, I didn't quite know what to get you. Besides, it's kind of awkward for me shopping, so uh, here's a hundred dollars. You go and buy yourself something, huh? They have some nice alligator bags at Bergdorf's. Oh, do they? Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, that, I mean, that Sheldrake thing, it, it threatened to pull me out of the movie when we discover this character, Fran, is kind of in that relationship because I was just like, she is so much smarter than that. Like, yeah, why, yeah. you know, how could she have been pulled into it? And like, he sells it in a way that it doesn't feel like, you know, you know, in a way that you kind of might see nowadays, a kind of pandered, like this very strong female character, like she won't let anyone. And it's like, no, this doesn't make her look weak. It just makes it, you know, she's human. You understand kind of what led the people that she must have been with earlier that kind of pulled her into this, you know, very dependent relationship on someone who really really was promising her like I will get divorced for you like I'll take care of you and by the end of it I it makes it all the more rewarding when she kind of escapes that for you know and I don't know what kind of future she's going to have with Baxter you know whether that's going to be anything but it's just you feel and that's why I really think your this conversation is convincing me this is her movie by the end of it because you feel most optimistic for her by the end of you know where's she going from here what's this you know what's the new life that she's going to carve for herself more so than you know Baxter I think is probably on that first stage we said just you know he's he's gotten backbone he's figured out how to like actually think for himself but then what what's he going to do with that he has you know so much more to figure out before in a way that I think she is like and he's packing up when she when she comes back like he's taking you know he's taking action he's getting out like he's he's doing what he needs to do but i always think that the protagonist is the person running at the end right the Mm -hmm. person who needs to like get there by midnight driving the car into the sunset oh yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. and and that she is running from the chinese restaurant to his apartment right i think proves your point of like whose action are we following and i also think that your observation of like she's so smart how could she have been so stupid to fall for him sets her up as needing to be taken care of in a way that like i don't think if it were as much of a disparity you'd be as convinced that she just needed someone to like put her in bed and being be really nice to her because part of why she takes sleeping pills i think is like how is i so stupid like she can't she's trying to she's too smart to know how ridiculous this is oh completely and and she's beating herself up by saying like if you're so smart then how come you ended up in this situation it's very much like that like high school movie trope where like the arty girl falls for the quarterback but like her best friend who was there all along and loves her it's you know it's ripped from from the apartment you know it's interesting the 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 i watched this movie on amazon prime and the poster there is like shirley mcclain dead center and we had fred mcmurray and and jack lemon on the side so it's it is confirming this idea that this is fran's movie um you know she's terrific in, in it 
And, you know, there's all, all we, we covered a few of the smaller characters. We have our landlady, we have the Dreyfuses, we have our four or three other managers who kind of add a lot to it and, and kind of make it a more interesting kind of office setting. They all have their slang, you know, they call them buddy boy and they call these uh, ring-a-dings, like the, the expressions and the slang from the 1960, I, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, one thing I did kind of want to talk about is like the, like the humor of it, right? The, 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 whether it's coming from the Dreyfuses or whether it's coming from Fran and things like that, the humor in this movie, the way that, that they're talking and, and the pace and some of this dialogue seems kind of Jewish, but I wanted to get some thoughts on that. And, you know, the writers were Jewish, so it, it does follow, but, uh, yeah, some thought, any thoughts on that? Um, there's a beautiful history of comedy writing, uh, and our people, our people are very yeah, yeah. Our people are all on strike right now as I as I sit with you. Yeah, that's yeah. Um I um I also want to give a shout out to Edie Adams who plays um does she play Mr. Sheldrake's first secretary? Oh, is she um... the one who like spills that um that they had had an affair as well. Right. Um she um I've I'm a I'm a big fan of Edie Adams. I think she's really funny and really sexy yeah. and um, love Ms. her Olsen. work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. She was she was great. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of lines that like live now, pay later, diner club, be a mensch. You know what that means? Like the the introduction of this concept of the mensch from Doctor Dreyfus. I think we get a lot of the of the humor lines from Dr. Dreyfus, almost sort of like you were saying, this uh, vaudeville uh, Yiddishisms are great from mm -hmm. both of the characters, which are in such stark contrast to the way that like uh, Mr. Sheldrake talks, which is like, yeah, very straightforward. And yeah. I, um, I think the other thing that, you know, when you talk about like the Jewishness of like the humor, and this is something we've discussed, like identifying these characters that are kind of rolling their eyes at the rest of the world like yeah. they're you know smirking looking on at everyone else is like okay like whatever and i think that there is a lot of baxter in that you know a lot of his when we were talking about why doesn't he correct himself in front of why doesn't he explain himself in front of everyone who's questioning him it's yeah. just the this isn't worth my time like i see what's going on this is all ridiculous he's clearly you know an outsider in you know both in his apartment building of course but then yeah. even at the office in terms of the culture in terms of you know the christmas party what everyone else is looking for with fran where he's just you know, he he exists outside of it in a way that lets him kind of laugh, laugh at it and lets us laugh along with him. And, you know, just when you were talking about the Jewishness of the humor, Daniel, that's kind of what I was thinking about, you know, the way his character positions the audience. Yeah. I mean, like when he shows up in that, this is not necessarily a text kind of thing, but like the, the visual look of him where he comes in with that bowler hat and he has the black eye because he's just been punched in the face and he's coming in looking very dapper with the sunglasses on into the office where everyone's kind of like buttoned up and at their desk and working and he's like it's a he he very much does feel like an outsider um and doesn't really fit in even when he's like part of this club of the executive washroom and stuff he just he's still like he's able to do his work and he performs very well but you know i think the manager's still kind of see him as an asset for whom they can, you know, borrow his key and things like that. I don't think they have accepted him as like one of one of their own. And like every every single time he like tries to set healthy boundaries for himself, they're like, well, I don't know, the the review is coming up and you don't want to ruin your chances. It's like, 
how many times are you going to take advantage of this guy? Yeah, they keep and, like, moving the let line. Him off. Yeah, yeah. They keep moving the line, and also there's a beautiful, there's a great tradition of Jews eating shit and dealing with it by making jokes about it instead of like having any efficacy to change anything. Well, well articulated. That's exactly the idea that <laughs> I was trying to point to. Thank you yeah. for saying that. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Um, well, I think Harry has some categories for us after the break, so we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll discuss some of the categories. And uh, yeah, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Julie Klausner discussing the film The Apartment. Harry, I understand that you have some categories for us. Sure. Yeah, same, one as, same ones as always. Yeah, but, you uh, think I'd I've be got... used to it by now, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we're going to go through most Jewish scene, stretch of the pod, and then, of course, is this good for the Jews? So why don't we start with the most Jewish scene? And I wonder, Daniel or Julie, do you have do either of you have one that kind of comes to mind as the most Jewish scene in this movie? Well, I think the obvious answer is when his landlord brings Fran chicken soup. Um, but I, I'm going to go with um, when... Baxter goes into work and repeats to Mr. Sheldrake that he's being a mensch and says, don't, do, do you know what that is? It's a human being because I, um, I like that he is, um, we don't, we don't look to recruit, you know, but, but we do spread the gospel. Um, and I, uh, I, I think we, we do that in the form of like making culture, you know, ma writing things, making things, broadcasting. And I think, um, you know, Baxter up until that moment has not really been interested in teaching anybody anything, correcting anybody. Um, he doesn't care with whether or not he's understood. But in that moment, he is taking the opportunity to kind of teach by example and say, like, this is what you do. You know, I'm not taking this key. I'm not taking a job. And I'm finally standing up to you. And do you know why? Because. I've decided I've decided to be a mensch and I learned that from my extremely Jewish neighbor, Dr. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to say second runner up is the one where he explains to you that he makes spaghetti with the tennis racket because it makes me hungry. The iconic. The it does look very good, by the way, you know, hanging down great. from the tennis racket. It yeah. looks terrific. So that's really more is. about me than anything else. But no, but in some ways between between the spaghetti, between the chicken soup, this really is a food movie, which I think lends some credence to its Jewishness, you know, all the homey food that's served. And just echoing what you said, Julie, I think the, the chicken soup is what came to mind, but really like that whole mensch, you know, that meant the kind of, you know, promoting that idea of, you know, of being a mensch, the way that that's kind of filtered throughout the end of the movie. Like as much as the chicken soup felt like the obvious Jewish scene, that was when I sat up in my chair and was like, whoa, like that's what we're ending on. What's gotten into you, Baxter? Just following doctor's orders. I've decided to become a mensch. You know what that means? A human being. Now hold on, Baxter. Save it. The old payola won't work anymore. Goodbye, Mr. Sheldrake. It's like, this is really, and we're definitely stepping on good for the Jews, but just this, the way that, you know, Wilder is taking these, you know, very Jewish, Yiddish ideas and pushing them as the morality of this movie, of this entire mm -hmm. movie is, you know, strikingly Jewish. And I really, really responded to that. Uh, Daniel, is there another scene that we haven't covered yet that you want to add into the mix or yeah. did you get it all? No, I think, I mean, I think, uh, you know, my man, Dr. Dreyfus needs a little bit of love in the, in the, Absolutely. In the favorite Jewish scene. I mean, all of his lines are so good. Like his, his pacing and like his messages are great. It's like a, it's like a nice sort of, um, you know, a gentle hand, uh, 
you know, in terms of like setting the record straight with Baxter telling him how to lead his life. The whole that whole scene where he's trying to like wake Fran up. I think that extended scene, all the lines contained within um, that to me is like the most Jewish scene just because it's like nurturing. There's a doctor there. He's talking so quickly and he's like giving a little bit of to, to Baxter while also helping a friend out. So it's kind of like. A little bit of everything, so that's gonna yeah, be yeah. And pick. he's and he's good at his job, which is oh, yeah. all, everybody everybody loves loves that. And I also I, I also like Dr. Dreyfus at the end saying, you know, join us, we're having a party. Yeah, booze booze we don't need is a great <laughs> a, a that's another that that's a Jewish party. If you have enough, Close booze, to home. Yeah. Then that's a Jewish party. It's like, well, do you have any pizza? But um, but then the other and then the landlady saying new is always oh always makes me happy and then finally i'd say dr dreyfus's um wife not letting fran eat with paper towels like she has to get the napkins go to She's my like, apartment yeah What's they're the, the matter with you you know you're getting <laughs> yeah. napkins like it all it really the jewishness in this movie all comes back to the dreyfuses i mean they are mm-hmm. our clear jewish representation and sure. pretty great ones i would i would say without yep. getting to the third category but before we get to the third one let's oh. start with the second one let's go okay. in order um and i wanted to ask you know what is your jewish stretch of the film so I'll, I'll start us off with this one i have Wait, one what does that mean whole... what does that question mean ah. so exactly so that's why i'm going to start off just to give you a sense of what this is but it's basically when we come up with a stretch in the film we we insert a jewish read into the movie that likely possibly was or wasn't intended by the filmmakers but it's just our way of saying well if you're really watching with the jewish angle which you know daniel and i like to i we were joking before the recording that we can't watch any movies now without saying well was that a jewish thing <laughs> yeah. you know, even... but uh but it's just our way of kind of coming up with some fun jewish stretch we used to do this, you know, in the in the context of our conversation, and then we decided let's just save it for its own category. So, you know, the one that I wanted to come up with, and this is also just an excuse to reference one of my favorite running gags in the movie is, you know, all those lines where they say, you know, something wise. So, you know, the example that I have written down here is, Why can't I ever fall in love with somebody nice like you? Yeah, well, that's the way it crumbles, cookie wise. Which just yeah. is just such a funny running gag and so ridiculous that every time it popped up, you know, there's there's a couple at least in the in the movie that show up. And you know, my read of that is that that kind of you know reorienting the sentence structure. It's very it's a semantic thing that's very you know much akin to like when people talk about like Yoda from Star Wars the way he talks. And I've heard you know people refer to that as a very almost like Hebrew way you know right. of reversing a lot of the you know the the sentence structure of what comes first before the other. So you know introducing that kind of running gag. I'm just speculating here, but maybe Wilder was thinking of this Hebrew semantic structure of this kind of Jewish way of speaking and said, you know, I'm going to turn that into my running comedy gag. So, you know, maybe not the most Jewish scene in the movie, but in some ways you could say uh, maybe it is. So that's what I'm going with for my stretch. But uh, do you have any, Julie? Do you have one, Daniel, that you wanted to to add into the mix? I would say just Christmas. I'd Mm -hmm. say like feeling lonely and left out on Christmas. Um, yeah. the, the scene where he's at the bar and Santa Claus is drinking oh, yeah. and he says, right. I work for the outfit. Um, and, uh, and, and all of that stuff about being single on Christmas and having a fruitcake that someone sends you and you don't know what the hell to do with it. And you're not quite sure what to do with yourself or how much you work or how much you go to work or how much you just sort of sit around and watch television. Um, that the, 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 what do I, what do I do with myself over Christmas and the showing just how depressing Christmas can truly be is um, is very uh, refreshing. And and by the way, like that meta that that um that running semantic 
which booze we don't need is like pop comedies of you know where you're right proving what you're saying but i i love when they finally get to that's the way it crumbles cookie wise that when they find because they say this this wise this that wise they get to cookie wise she he says that when she calls him a nice guy hmm. when she said when she finally says the thing every man who is a nice guy i assume dreads hearing from someone they're in love with which is why can't i fall in love with nice guys like you mm. and he says well that's the way it crumbles cookie wise and it is such <laughs> a good payoff to all of the other you know phrases that follow that pattern but it's all i think it all builds up to him like real like that that moment to me sure right. for for those who didn't watch the movie could you what are some other wise examples that maybe uh any off off the top of your head well when ray walston sees that like shirley mclean's in bed he's that you really hit the jackpot kublik wise like that oh okay example, yeah, yeah you know nice yeah, I like that it really comes to a head in that kind of self. He's finding his own identity, right? He really right. He, he's incorporating the Jewish lessons that have been told from the Dreyfuses, and I think this uh, this rewards our read. So I love it. I have a, a very stretchy stretch, but it's a little thin um, regarding the Dreyfuses. Um, it's more around like kosher kashrut stuff. So um, she asked them not to wash her dishes. She's going to take care of them herself. So maybe she's like worried that the dishes might get like unkosher if they use the wrong sponges kind of thing. That was my very like kind of read of it. And then also like uh, Baxter asked him if he wanted any liquor and, and, uh, he said, we have plenty. So maybe it was like, Oh, your wine might not be kosher. I'm going to keep our own, you know, well, very stretchy wilder likely did not have that in mind, but that was kind of where I was thinking. Um, yeah. Harry, I don't think that the, the so-and-so wise thing is from the Jews. I think that's what he picked up from office culture. I think that's assimilation because that's what mm, all the guys in the office so. say. That's what he learned to say in order to like rise the ranks. Oh, was, oh all the other managers were saying all the wise the other... business? Ah, okay. Yeah, right. all those guys, all those jerks. Buddy boy. Yeah, those that's, jerks. That's the way it those crumbles. weirdos. They're all so weird. They're like the yeah. weirdest guys. Yeah. And like to think this... that these guys are like picking up like the, this Marilyn Monroe lookalike. He's in the bar and he's like calling him, you know, right when he goes to right. sleep. Or they're, or they're secretaries who are people they work with. It's just right. like it, it's such a like they immediately establish this revolting culture that everyone's on board with immediately. Like it's almost like that's the open. It is, oh, speaking of opening number, like we should just mention that this was made into a musical oh, called yeah. Promises, Promises. Um, which stripped all the Jewishness out of it. Oh no! Was Dreyfuses not opinion, in it? I don't remember if the oh. Dreyfuses are in it, but but it's it's Backrack and David, and it's very swinging. And Jerry Orbach played the lead, Ooh. and um, there's some great huh. great songs. Jill O'Hara was fabulous in it. I mean, Neil Simon wrote the book, so yes, it is Jewish. I I retract what I what I said. I saw the revival uh, with Sean Hayes and. Kristen Chenoweth, which was charming, but it just is hmm. such a different. I, I mean, I can't, I can't necessarily offhand think of anything that is quite as different from the original. Just tonally, to me, this movie is not backrack, um, but but back, but it's its own thing, which is really cool and interesting. And obviously, there's a dance number called Turkey Lurkey Time, which is one of the best dance numbers of all time. Love it. <laughs> um, but I. Um, 
I can't quite reckon there's a there's a cognitive dissonance between the musical and the film that I find really interesting. Huh. Yeah, even when you mentioned like some of the actors in the revival, I just imagining them in the same roles. It's it's obviously and for Broadway especially, but it's just a very different kind of performance, I can imagine. Well, Katie Finner in stole the show as Margie. I remember she had a, a star turn when I mean it's like such a funny part. Nice. It's a glowing wreck. It all comes yeah. back to uh to context corner. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, We're still we never in quit it. it. We never left. Exactly. Uh, but but I, I was gonna say I'll transition us to the final of our three categories sure. so we can wrap up this section and just ask, you know, is this good for the Jews? And we heard, you know, Julie, we heard your answer earlier in the podcast. I, you know, you threw it out, but if you want to elaborate, here's your time to the floor is yours. I can't think of a better movie for the Jews. Oh I can't okay. think of anything that would make People give us another, you know, if they value things like, you know, being smart and writing good movies and <laughs> having good values and being a doctor. I don't know. It's I, I think it's one of the best ever advertisements for our people. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it checks awesome. all the boxes we discuss in this category mm -hmm. where, you know, if you just want to take it from, well, is it a good rep? Like, is it a good film? Like, yes, it makes, you know, Wilder look great. It makes, you know, Jews as, as you know, competent filmmakers. But then even when you bury, when you go into the text of the movie, like there is, there are some Jewish, you know, sure, like stereotypical kind of Yiddish characters, but they're just so positively portrayed. They enact all of the moralizing in the movie. This was, uh, I was so proud and excited to watch this one. Totally. Yeah, I'm on board with that. I think uh, the Dreyfuses are good at what they do, you know, whether that's nurturing people or like taking care of people's medical needs. They have like a strong backbone and they're, they don't like waver from that. I think Baxter, all the characters are a little bit like loosey goosey, you know, they are subject to change and, and evolving, but like the Dreyfuses are like, you know, they're anchors in, in a certain way, like moral anchors. And we know that we can kind of rely on them to deliver the goods to our characters, help them out. Um, no question that they're Jewish. Uh, all of the, all of the stuff, you know, humor, the, the morals and, uh, and I think just like their functions there all prove that this film is a very solid. So, I, I think we could tally this one up as like a good for the Jews on the scoreboard. We have a running Absolutely. scoreboard, you know, I think this was definitely on there. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Any and, any other any other hidden categories? Anything else, Harry? No, I think let's just take it to the end. So we rank this film. We're all, all going right. to give a ranking on a there scale of one to five Jewish stars, and it'll be on the Jewishness of the movie, not necessarily the quality. Although I think we can all agree it's it's high quality film. But keeping into consideration everything we've discussed prior, including you know the casting crew, the content of the movie itself, any of the themes and stretches we uncovered, but. You know, the question really is just up in the air. How Jewish is this film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars? Uh, ten. Oh, <laughs> amazing. We'll have to extend the ranking a little bit when Please we post do. this. But yeah, five times yeah. two. All right. Solid. I love it. Yeah, I think I'm going to go, you know, I think the the casting crew, We, you know, we have our, our writers and director are Jewish. As far as I could tell, you know, um, Jack Crucian, who plays Dr. Dreyfus and Mildred Dreyfus, um, um, she uh, often she's played by Naomi Stevens. She often played ethnic roles, but I couldn't at as of, as of this recording, I could not confirm that she was Jewish. Um, you know, uh, the, our main cast of characters are not Jewish. Uh, that's so. So that's in front of and behind the camera. Um, content wise, you know, 
you know, there's no synagogues, there's no davening, there's no kippahs, all that kind of stuff, you know, just, you know, painting a picture here for those who have not seen the film. Um, and thematically, I think this is where the film shines. You know, we have our Dreyfuses and all the, the, the mentionists we talked about. So I'm going to go like three and a half or four. Yeah. 3.75 or four. All right. Final answer. Yeah. Harry. Right, there it is. Yeah. In terms of the Jewishness of this film, I really think it comes back to the conversation we were having at the top of the recording where we were figuring out if this is a movie that's about this kind of proto Jewish character or representative of a Jewish character who's navigating, you know, some of the more thematic reads that we we, we worked in the these questions of assimilation and how to fit in in the workplace and, you know, what you have to do. I mean, even what you were saying before, Julie, about adopting the language of the workplace, you know, the things that you have to do to fit in in the workplace and, yeah. you know, push against some of your, you know, Jewishness. And if that's the generous read that we're going to give this movie and say even though you know that might not be the character you know this is a billy wilder film people write about you know themselves and he's obviously a, a big jew so under that read i think it's a lot more jewish you know alternatively yes. it could just be the story about this kind of waspy character that you know billy wilder very generously cast these ancillary jewish figures who you know in the dreyfuses who you know motivate a lot of the important themes and a lot of there they really are some of the catalysts for the you know the growth especially for baxter's character by the end and in which case there's clearly a jewish soul in this movie and especially ending it with this idea of a mensch but it might not be as you know as five out of five or i'd say ten out of five like you said julie you know jewish yeah. film that yeah i think the former would give it so because I'm not sure between those two, I mean, it still is one of like a lot, one of the more Jewish films we've seen, especially one of the more, you know, very big Hollywood Oscar winning yeah, Jewish yeah, yeah. Of, of all those that we've yeah. discussed, this might be the most Jewish. So I'm going to give it a very high, you know, 4.5 out of five. Ooh, I think it's just, okay. I think it's just that last 0.5 depends on kind of where you read it because there is so much Jewishness to this film that, you know, we didn't even have to go digging so deeply to, uh, to pull out, but yeah, so pretty high there. I, I think it's just a, it's a great it's it's a great ambassador for our people. So absolutely, I'll, I'll reduce mine to five because I realize ten is what like Yentl. <laughs> so Yentl yeah. might be we have like one or I think we have okay. like three five out of fives and Yentl yeah, is yeah, one yeah. of them. Oh wow, okay. We've yeah. never really got up to ten, but in theory, yes. Yentl All right, then be. I'll yeah. then I'll do four point five also. Then then I'll okay, change it to four point five. So, then, and yeah. you are also because of the because the two yeah I'll do four and a half because of the two leads being you know sort of like either waspy or like Irish Catholic uh, coded. Right. Exactly. This is a this is a late breaking news. I just looked up Kublik and uh, it's a Czech surname. Is there a possibility that Kublik is maybe a Jewish Czech person? Maybe not. Well, her uh, her brother in law is also Eastern European in it. And, and, and that's kind of like played for like they're almost like you know, there was probably a conversation about like, should they be Italian? Like, right. if it, or is it Polish? Like, who are we? You know, it's almost like they're they're like they're they're represented as like the working class. Yeah. Um, whereas Bacter's represented as like the professional class, and then mm -hmm. the Jews, the people that are just like obviously Jewish, are either it's either like the landlord or the doctor, which is yeah, professional, right. but also professional class. But like, um, you know, that sort of like. What would you call that? Like one way is still skilled. Class, yeah, I, I guess. I don't know. Right, right. Ethnic middle class, I'd say. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was Carl Matushka, played by Johnny Seven. Yes. I did I not don't... related to Tom Six, who directed the, the human centipede films. <laughs> 
Good point. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> no, it's important. Yeah, he, he's to, Italian. Yeah, he's no. from Bay Ridge. But I'm wonder. I got like a very like yeah. His his accent was like very like Italian Brooklyn. Yeah, he was giving uh, what we needed for that. Where you're just like, oh, this guy got it. No, I yeah. know who he is. What does she say to him when she like kisses him? She's like, he just she gave her a shot, pumped out her stomach. What for? Because I took some sleeping pills, but I'm all right now. So let's go. Why'd you take sleeping pills? On account of me. You. Who else? Leave him alone! Oh, you fool. Damn fool. She has so many good lines. I love Fran in this movie. She's terrific. Julie Klausner, thank you so much for being here on Juice on oh, Film. To it's my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, I wanted to check at this time if there's anything you wanted to like plug or promote to let our fans know where they can find you. People can find me on social media, unfortunately. And then um, as I just waste too much time on there. But I um, I I do a podcast called Double Threat with my friend Tom Sharpling. And so you can hear me there. And um, I, uh, I I just wanted to thank you both so much for having me to talk about one of my favorite movies. Yeah, this is a good one. Um, I am starting to sound like a broken record, but I really do appreciate when people, you know, I had not seen The Apartment before you suggested it. And like every time someone suggests a new movie and it ends up being an incredible film, I yeah. say the same shtick every single episode, but it's true. Like I do feel like getting to discuss it with you and, and being able to discover this movie and share it with people is a real joy. So thanks so much for. for oh, and I'm thank you. Us. And I'm so glad I'm, I'm so glad that I'm responsible for you having seen it. Hopefully, you know, one person at a time. I'm, I'm absolutely. What is that called? Would you like stand on the mountain? You preach. Um, I'm evangelizing. That's oh, what yeah. I'm doing. Totally. Yes, I am an apartment evangelist. Well, hopefully, you know, there's more suggestions from you and we can have you on again and discuss, you know, other films and things like that. Um, Harry, anything to plug? This movie, like we yes. said, Ambassador yeah, for, all right, for the all Jews. Right. I love it. I love Amen. it. I'll echo everything. Amen. Yeah, definitely. I, I'll get on board with that. Uh, I think we should all get, you know, be a part of the apartment street team. Uh, what is or it? Share key. 60. <laughs> ah, very good. Uh, like, like 63 years later. Um, well, yeah. thanks. <laughs> thanks everyone for listening to Jews on Film. You can find us on all the social medias, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. Like you said, Julie, it's, it's too much time spent online on social I media. I know. But you got to get the word out there and uh, really appreciate everyone checking out the podcast. Uh, you can email us at Jews on Film Pod at Gmail if you have any suggestions or feedback and things like that. And have a good one and Shabbat Shalom. Bye. Bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.